From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. You know how they say April showers bring May flowers? Well, let's advance that a little. For fall colors, Colorado had summer showers. Which will likely give us a pretty good display, pretty brilliant display, unless we get a big windy storm that comes in in early October and really knocks everything down in a hurry. Fall colors and how weather and climate affect them in our regular chat with Denver 7's Mike Nelson. Plus, what's in store for winter? Then, Vic Vela's own journey back from broken, forced to face a health crisis that nearly took his life. It was just an ordinary day and a routine trip to the doctor. And from that day on, I've been struggling to come to terms with my new reality. How do I stay sober when life gets completely turned upside down? Meeting the growing demand for in-depth news and music exploration across Colorado is time-consuming and expensive work. And member support is central to delivering the local stories you rely on. I'm Jason Moore, Membership Director at Colorado Public Radio. Your support today upholds impartial journalism, intelligent debate, and an informed, curious community. Members are part of something special at CPR, and we want you to know that you are truly appreciated. Begin or renew your membership today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It is too early for ski traffic, but CDOT warns that this weekend I-70 in the mountains will be teeming with leaf peepers around the state mountain passes will be clogged. Saturday, after all, is the official start of fall, which brings shorter days and longer nights, And apparently it brings Mike Nelson as well, Denver 7's chief meteorologist, is back for our regular chat about climate and weather. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ryan. I've never been associated with the change of seasons like that, but I appreciate it. Have you had something pumpkin spiced yet? I have a little, but not too much yet. I want to kind of lengthen it out over the whole (laughs) season. We're just starting to put up the fall decorations around the house, so Cindy and I will get that accomplished probably later on today. Cindy is your wife. Uh, To another fall tradition, I was in Leadville last weekend and leaves were just starting to turn colors at, you know, the tippy top of Colorado. What determines the time and intensity of colors? It's actually mostly determined by the length of daylight. The aspen leaves, well, all trees, they're deciduous in general, but the aspens in particular here are the ones we're concerned about. They're getting less chlorophyll as the sunlight is less in the daytime and they shut down for the winter. Uh, It is somewhat affected by how wet or dry the summer has been. And this year we've had a pretty wet summer for a lot of Colorado, especially along and east of the Continental Divide, which will likely give us a pretty good display, pretty brilliant display unless we get a big windy storm that comes in in early October and really knocks everything down in a hurry. So it's mostly kind of a long-term thing of the amount of daylight, but there are some weather impacts that enter into how much of viewing pleasure we have every fall. Does heat play a role in this? And I, I am angling at the notion of whether climate change could change fall colors. Well, it certainly could. Heat in the short term, like just a hot summer, If it's a hot, dry summer, oftentimes that will lend itself to the the trees are already a little bit stressed and they'll tend to lose their leaves a little bit quicker. In the longer term, as everything warms up, we will see changes in the growth pattern of where 
aspen groves actually develop because if it's too warm, too dry, they won't form there and it'll gradually work their way up into cooler and wetter areas, which would be generally higher up the mountain. Well, mountains come to a point eventually, and so you start to run out of more space. The last time we connected, you said the El Nino weather pattern made it hard to nail down what's in store for Colorado this fall and winter. Noah recently said the odds of a strong El Nino have increased, and the pattern is expected to last through winter. So are the impacts on Colorado any clearer now, Mike? A little bit. I don't think we're going to see a particularly cold winter because El Nino years tend to uh, manifest themselves in a southwesterly jet stream flow coming out of the southwest across the United States. That tends to block the really cold air from coming down into Canada. We'll get some cold fronts. We'll have some cold days, but in general, the trend is not for a chilly winter. In terms of the storms, the Pacific Ocean's a big place, and exactly where that pool of warm water is its warmest changes the flow of the jet stream. And so if we get these storms coming in across the southwestern United States, oftentimes an El Nino winter means better snows for southwestern Colorado, not quite as much for Summit County and up towards Steamboat. But even the strong El Ninos have their own individual flavors, again, because the Pacific is such a large area. Hmm. It is fascinating to think about us being landlocked and separated by the Rocky Mountains from the Pacific, and yet it's still determining our weather pattern, you know? There's all kinds of global circulations. There are those in the Atlantic as well, and they do have implications worldwide. The Farmer's Almanac recently released its winter forecast, calling actually for cold with average snowfall. Uh, I feel like back in the day it was a go-to resource. Do you still rely, or have you ever relied on the Farmer's Almanac? I like the Farmer's Almanac. Uh, I've always enjoyed reading it. They have great anecdotes and stories excellent pumpkin spice recipes very often. I don't know if you know the backstory on the old farmer's almanac, but back in the day, I mean, there are all kinds of almanacs. That's how people figured out their planting cycles because we didn't have anything better 150 years ago. Well, the story goes, the editor, the writer of it, had the flu and didn't feel very well. And his publisher kept knocking on the door saying, I need your copy. I've got to get this out. And so finally he yelled through the door and said, we're going to have a freeze in June and it will snow in July, figuring that his publisher would go, oh, he's obviously just out of his mind with this fever. I'll come back later. To his horror, he wrote it up and published it and it went out to everybody. And the guy figured out, I'm going to be ruined. I'll be the laughing stock of New England. <laughs> Turned out that was the year 1817, if I'm not mistaken, when there was a gigantic volcanic eruption that put so much particulates into the atmosphere, it caused a cooling for a couple of years. And we actually had frost in New England in June, and it snowed on the top of Mount Washington in July. Suddenly, this guy goes out and says, I called it. It's in my book. I wrote that up three months ago. And he became famous. That's why the old Farmer's Almanac is still around. Now, you said you liked it, but do you rely on it? No. Okay. <laughs> Any more than when people say, uh, my app tells me this. There's nothing wrong with apps either, but they are generally just the mechanical output, if you will, from a forecasting model with no human interaction. 
And despite the fact that there's all of this AI and everything else going on, humans are still pretty good at ciphering through all the data and kind of uh, adding that little touch that makes it more accurate. Oh, you'd have to say that, though, as they... <laughs> at least for a little while longer. Yeah. Yeah. Weather human. OK, before we wrap up, uh, why don't we play a little game? Mike, I was thinking we could each guess when the first significant snowfall will be in Denver. If you win, I'll give you some CPR swag. If I win, I want some Denver 7 merch. Sounds good. I'm guessing I'm in a bit of a disadvantaged place, given your expertise. But um, what do you say to the the bet? All right. I like the bet. Okay. I'll start. Okay. I'm going to say, um, I'm going to go with October 11th. All right. I like that one. I'm not going to be far behind you. I'm going to say October 15th. Okay. For some context, the earliest recorded snowfall in Denver was September 3rd, 1961. The latest first snowfall in Denver, December 10th in 2021. So that's a pretty recent record. And we're talking about one-tenth of an inch of snow at DIA, correct? Is that our threshold? Let's make that our threshold. Okay, that's great. We'll circle back in October. Thanks so much, Mike. As always, great to talk to you, Ryan. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson joining us for our regular conversation about the interplay between weather and climate in Colorado. East Colorado Matters from CPR News. The falling leaves drift by the window The autumn leaves of red and gold I see your lips, the summer kisses The sunburned hands I used to hold You expect context from CPR News, but sometimes the news won't wait. Sign up for the Lookout Daily Email from CPR News, a rundown of important fact-based reporting in your inbox every day. And when major news breaks, you'll also get Lookout alerts. Sign up at CPR.org lookout. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. CPR's podcast, Back From Broken, was inspired by its host's recovery. And as the third season comes to a close, Vic Vela comes to terms with one of the biggest health scares of his life. Over the last few months, he recorded audio diaries of the experience. He shares some of the best and worst days, culminating with his home team making history. Seven-year wait is over. The Denver Nuggets stand on top of the NBA world. They are champions. And Nuggets fans from sea to shining sea can rest or die in peace. I was inside Denver's Ball Arena the night this happened, surrounded by screaming Nuggets fans going out of their minds over the team's first ever championship. I was one of them. I mean, I've been cheering for the Nuggets since I was a little boy and suffered through many losing seasons. But this time, they actually won. I tweeted a video of myself trying to put this moment into words. 
I am so happy for the Denver Nuggets. I'm so happy for my city. And I'm just so happy for the fans who have, who have waited for this moment for like the last five decades. And I'm happy for myself. You know, I've been through a lot. I, I had a lot of health struggles and I struggle with addiction. And um, I'm alive. I'm alive to see this moment. And uh, this is so much fun. I'm so happy. I love you. Why was I crying? Why was this such an emotional, even spiritual moment for me? Because I was alive to see it. Because in the months leading up to this game, I could have died. I almost didn't get to witness my Nuggets make history because of the biggest health scare I've ever had in my life. It was an illness that came from left field. I didn't see it coming at all and it made me rethink everything. I'm forced to think about my work as a newscaster and weekend edition host, waking up at 5 a.m. on a Saturday and Sunday, playing the Dave Brubeck Quartet's All the Things You Are, which is something I do every morning as I prepare for the show. Democratic bills that protect abortion, then going on the air. You're listening to NPR News. And good morning. You're listening to CPR News and KRCC. I'm Vic Vela. It's good to be back on the air after a little bit of a break. Uh, and of course, I step away for one weekend and spring becomes winter. Yeah, lots of heavy snow with this storm. Caused a lot of power outages uh, and there's fallen tree branches all over the place. I've already overcome so much in my life. I'm a recovering crack cocaine addict. I've overdosed more times than I can remember. I have HIV and survived a near AIDS diagnosis. Now, this. It was just an ordinary day and a routine trip to the doctor. The shock of that moment has really stayed with me. From that day on, I've been struggling to come to terms with my new reality. How do I stay sober when life gets completely turned upside down? So let me talk about why I wanted to do this audio diary. In the first season of Back From Broken, you heard me talk about how I suffered through addiction and ultimately got the help I needed. But now I think it's important to talk about how in sobriety and in recovery, we must live life on life's terms. How I navigate a crisis without shooting a needle full of dope into my arm. The day that everything changed seemed ordinary. It was a regular trip to the doctor's office for some routine blood work. But after I left, I got an urgent call from my doctor about my blood sugar levels. They were so high, I could have easily fallen into a coma or even died. It turned out I was walking around with undiagnosed, untreated, full-blown diabetes. I was totally shocked. And at that moment, 
my life completely changed. My doctors still don't really know how things got so bad so quickly. I had COVID in November, and it's likely that that caused things that were already going inside my body to escalate. My blood sugar, my cholesterol was through the roof. Even my T-cell count, which had been in good shape for the last 16 years after my HIV diagnosis, was starting to plummet. In my first diary after the diagnosis, I poured out a lot of emotions. I'm really freaking out. Uh, I, uh, my eyesight is, is going, and uh, that, that is, that's likely a complication of the diabetes that got out of control, that spun out of control over the last month or so that just totally has upended my life. So now I go from living my normal life to seeing all these doctors and specialists all the time. I worry about the foods I eat, and I stick myself with needles every day. I need insulin to survive. I feel like Mr. Magoo, you know, it's, it's, just, um, it's just another thing I'm dealing with. On top of everything else, my blood sugar has just been through the roof over the last few months, if not more. Um, and that's definitely taking, taking a toll on my body, on my mood, obviously on my eyesight and, and everything. And we're, I'm, start, I'm using insulin for the first time in my life, which is very humbling. And we're still trying to figure out the right dosage because even, even as we up my insulin do dosage throughout the day, the blood sugar is still high and um, it's really frustrating, you know, and uh, um, it's just a lot. Uh, I'm dealing with a lot right now. And, um, you know, thank God I'm sober. Thank God, even as I'm talking and leaving this voice memo, I, I'm smoking crack is not even uh, on the list. It's not even in my mind. And, and for that, I'm really grateful, but you know, I, I am, I try not to feel resentment over the fact that I've, I've already survived so much. And, and sometimes I, when I get caught up in negative thoughts, I sometimes say, God, you know, what else do you want me to overcome? I've overcome addiction. I've overcome overdoses. I've overcome HIV, nearly full-blown AIDS. You know, I've, I've overcome COVID. I've overcome so many health issues. And now I'm dealing with diabetes and eyesight issues and what else do you want from me? Like, what else am I supposed to do here? I, I need, I could really use some grace. And um, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's not fun. It's, it's really, I'm trying to stay positive, but it's, it's hard. I recorded a lot of these kinds of diaries as I struggled with things like my eyesight. Um, it's eight o'clock, uh, 8.30 here on a Sunday evening. And um, uh, my eyesight is uh, even worse than a bat <laughs> in a black hole. Like, it's just, I, uh, I can't see. I can't see.
you know, my hero, you know, I'm, a, I'm a deadhead, right? Uh, there's, I'm, I'm in my kitchen and I'm looking at a big, you know, full-framed poster of Jerry Garcia and, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge deadhead. Jerry, he did, he was a, a long-time heroin addict, but he also had uncontrollable diabetes. You know, he, at one point in the 1980s, he fell into a coma, a diabetic coma. Uh, so, I mean, and he died, you know, um, not far from how old I am now. And if, and if I were doing the same things he was, there's no doubt about it. I'd be dead. At moments like this, you turn to your family. Both my mom and dad have diabetes, so they know how to help. When, when you're faced with, with something life-altering, um, it can put you in a really reflective place. And, um, you know, but I, my family's here, my, my mom and dad. It, it's nice. They just, it, they're 45 minutes away and that's really nice, you know, to be able to see them. And, um, and they have diabetes too. So they're really helpful in terms of helping me navigate all of this. They've been actually, I mean, they're like, they're better. They're actual, they're better than health experts because they were actually going through it every day. So when those early days where I was like, how much insulin I'd be taking? My dad's like, uh, we'll take this amount and take, we'll try this. And, he was, it was his advice really that helped me get my insulin to, you know, the right places. One of the things I learned about diabetes is how it affects my moods. I'm already someone who has long struggled with behavioral issues. I can get really quiet and moody, but I could also have an explosive temper. With diabetes, out of control blood sugar can make me feel like I'm always on a short fuse. And in April, it blew. When my blood sugar spikes and I'm fed up with being sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, I'll lash out or, you know, do something stupid or say something stupid and, uh, you know, throw, uh, you know, throw, throw the, the remote control against the wall or something like that, you know. Um, there was this... Um, incident at a grocery store recently where <laughs> I almost, this this guy it, it's a huge pet peeve of mine where this where where people when they cut when they're exiting out of a lane they don't stop they just keep going like it's like do people drive that way that's scary and this guy almost hit my cart and cut me off. He wasn't paying attention. And I said, dude, you almost cut me off there. You almost hit me, hit me. And he just looked at me and didn't acknowledge it. And I said, you, buddy, you're just going to ignore me. And then he stopped in his tracks and went face to face with me and said, what did you say to me? And I said, I think I, I, you heard what I just said to you. So here are these, these two like idiots going back and forth, cursing at each other in the middle of Safeway. These little old ladies just picking fruit in the produce section, looking at us like we're <laughs> like monsters. And, you know, it, we almost came to blows in the middle of the day 
on a random Tuesday at the damn grocery store because I was reacting in a way that I maybe wouldn't have reacted if I wasn't feeling bad. Recording a diary has forced me to analyze myself. I mean, I've always thought I've had a pretty good self-awareness around the things I do well and the things I struggle with. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm some perfect human being and that I sit on top of a mountain listening to the sound of music. I know I have a lot of issues. I have a lot of rough edges. I mean a lot. And I always thought my quick temper was just who I am. But then looking back, I realized that it's something my dad and I share. I'm my, I'm my father's son. My dad explodes. My dad will curse at the TV at the Broncos game and, and throw fit and, and, and get, you know, he used to get, he was a troublemaker in high school as well and get in fights and he went to the army, he coached football and taught me to toughen up and suck it up. And so that's my dad. And I take very much after my dad. It feels like my hot temper is like the chicken and egg scenario. How much of our explosive nature is caused by undiagnosed, untreated medical issues like diabetes, or are we just like this? Just looking at the similarities between my dad and me makes me wonder. He was a popular kid in high school. He went to state and wrestling, went to the army. You know, he's, he was a community activist. My dad was on TV a lot. He led marches. You know, he was the community... He started this group called El Comité, the committee, which was worked to help bridge relationships between uh, brown communities and immigrant communities with the local police. And it led to better relations with those those groups of people. And it's still in existence today. So um, I get a lot of that stuff from my dad. He's also the guy who will people are drawn to him and his personality. Uh, but he also has demons and I have those same demons with, he was, cause he drank a lot and I drank a lot and I did a lot of drugs and, and he was quick tempered and I'm quick tempered. So I, I wish I had more of my mom, but you know, I love my dad. Making these audio diaries really helped me think about what's important in life, family and friends. And after the break, I discover how difficult it is to make the right decision all the time. We're listening to Back from Broken, host Vic Vela reflecting on the health scare that rattled him to the core. I'm Ryan Warner, here with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Hey, it's Rebecca. And Luis, the hosts of Music Blocks. A podcast about your favorite sounds, how they're created, and what makes them special. We're returning for season three. And this season, we're talking about instrument families. The different instrument families share connections that span the globe. In different cultures. In different genres. The new season of the CPR podcast, Music Blocks. Find it wherever you listen. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We're sharing a very personal episode of Back From Broken today as host and creator Vic Vela claws his way back from a health crisis. Diabetes has changed my whole life. Obviously, I had to adapt to new foods and stick to a super nutritious diet. And I did what the doctor said for the most part. I learned how to use insulin and 
started to empty my cupboards and threw away a lot of sugary snacks and temptations. But it wasn't easy, as my producer and I discovered. Most of the things I own have cartoon characters on them in terms of food, which that's probably a bad, a red flag, you know. So that's still a lot of carb stuff. I'm, I'm still learning. Some of this stuff has just been there for a while. Now, but look at, look at this, uh, all this uh, insulin. I have more insulin in my refrigerator than food. It's pretty amazing. Oh, my God. Isn't that something? Yeah. Um, that's how it works, you know. You, you, you just... Uh, get all these insulin pens and I, i'm grateful that that they're pens and not like um, vials and syringes i because that can trigger you know that's a trigger for drug use look i'm from a huge chicano family food is culture it's our identity now i have to navigate family events that are filled with my mom's home-cooked green chili and enchiladas that are to die for and it's suddenly sinking in that this changes forever. And I can't just sit around eating my mom's tortillas every day. Too many carbs, too much sugar. And I gotta say, I'm feeling a little resentful over that. I remember feeling really depressed about it when I was eating a donut back in April. It wasn't like this all-in-one, oh, I have to totally upend my life. I was eating a donut and I'm like, I can't do this anymore. Can I not have this donut anymore? And then that kind of triggered something else in me, the fed up part of, God, I quit cocaine, I quit alcohol, like I've done so much quitting already, smoking. Why, God, do I have to quit this simple thing, like this, these foods, like carbs and sugar? And I just kind of felt cheated. I just felt so angry at God. Uh, I was angry at my doctors for finding this information. And, um, I was, um, you know, angry at genetics because diabetes runs in my family. And it, I mean, so many people in my family have it. Then at the end of April, I got a devastating phone call from my mom. She found my cousin dead inside his apartment. Well, you guys get some rest, Mom. Please, please get some rest, okay? Just don't, oh, yeah. don't overdo it. And um, I'm going to eat something here. I haven't eaten yet today. so. Um, but I'll talk, talk to you guys soon. I love you. Love you too, baby. As I hung up the phone, I suddenly felt a little unmoved from reality. I just learned that my cousin had died and my mom discovered the body the image of that just made me think, could I do that to my mom? I reached out for my phone to record my thoughts. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. I don't want my mom to find me dead. Anyone else can find me dead, but not my mom. So... I will, t I need to take care of myself, right? Because I don't, it would, it would absolutely devastate her. My mom was really close to my cousin. He would sometimes call into Spanish radio stations and dedicate songs to her, like this one.
Now, I didn't know my cousin super well. We weren't that close. Coming from a Mexican-American family, I have lots of cousins, aunts, and uncles, and I myself am an uncle a million times over. I was mainly hurt because my mom was really suffering, and it's really hard to see your mom suffer. And the thing that really threw me for a loop was that my cousin died after struggling with drugs, alcohol, and diabetes. So I called a close friend. In terms of devastating, like it's like there's so much devastating stuff. Like I just forget <laughs> to mention other devastating stuff. Um, the my uh, my cousin died. Oh wow! And I I I wasn't. I, I knew him of course, and we're we're blood, and so and so it's obviously painful for the family, but I, it's my mom in particular was really close to him and mm. he had a lot of issues and he, he died of natural causes, but he lived a life where he really struggled. I and understand. yeah, so it contributed, all that bad stuff contributed to, yeah. I mean, he, he was only like, I think 52. Oof. Um, and it was my mom who was checking on him you know, mm -hmm. and, and she couldn't get him to answer the phone. So the police showed up and then when they showed up mm -hmm. and they walk in and they walk out and they go to my mom and say, oh, yeah, we're yeah. sorry, but he's, he's gone. Um, and my, you know, and, and my mom it was the person she never, you know, she never gave up on him. Like his, his mom died and it really broke him and his brother. And, and so he kind of, my mom kind of became a surrogate mom for him and his brother and but they just struggled man they had they just had some you know in and out of jail drinking uh, you know, yeah. just that her. could have been you yeah absolutely could have been dude that conversation with the close friend who had been there for me in addiction and recovery was exactly the thing i needed to do to find my spiritual footing this is how recovery works when you're struggling, you call someone and you talk about it. And, and that's where gratitude comes in and it's all back to recovery. It's like, you know, when I would, when I'd be like four months sober and complaining to my sponsor about how things are going that day, he just cuts me off. He's like, where's your gratitude? <laughs> I'm like, I don't have anything to be grateful about right now. I'm pissed off. And, and uh, he's like, where's your gratitude? And then yeah. I start thinking of the things I'm grateful for. And then all of a sudden I'm okay. I, I, I can handle it. Like I'm, I wear a patch, a sensor on my stomach that monitors my blood sugar. So, mm -hmm. and I could just look up on my phone what my blood sugar is right now, um, which is a huge modern advancement. And yeah. Um, you know, and, and things like that. And, um, you know, HIV, I mean, you don't have to, uh, all the people who I, when, when I caught HIV, it was, it was, the, it was the same, it was in the same month that the very first triple, like all in one pill medication came out. Wow. As opposed to, you know, taking all these cocktails throughout the day. Yeah. Wow. And I got on it right away and 
how am I not grateful for that, considering how many people died to get us there? Yeah. I felt a lot better after talking to friends and family about the things I was going through. And like I have so many times before in recovery, I turned to music as medicine. I was listening to a song called In the Hands of Angels from Leon Russell and Elton John. It's about how Leon thanked Elton for giving him new life by making a new album together called The Union. The song spoke to everything I was going through. I could have been sick I could have died I could have given up And I tried To make it to I just started crying. It, it was really emotional. And I started to draw on my inner strength to pull myself out of this hole, slowly but surely. I started to pay attention to my daily routine a lot more. For me, it starts first thing in the morning. So every day I wake up and the first thing I do before I even get out of bed is say the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. I say that before I do anything to start the day, and I say that several times throughout the day. And so when I say the serenity prayer, I close my eyes, and I don't just recite the lines. I take breaths. I, I, I focus on my breath in and out, in between the lines. So it's like, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Staying calm is really important, but reaching out and talking to friends in recovery is also pivotal. I need the support of people who love me. This was my last diary entry. Nowadays, my, my recovery mostly looks, looks more like community outside of meetings. So for example, um, Thursday or coming up here, I'm going to a Nuggets game with a friend of mine who I, we got sober basically at the same time and we've been recovery friends together. So it's, it's hanging out with other people in recovery as just regular human beings would and then talking about our issues if need be saying you know while we're rooting for the home team we're also saying hey you know i felt like drinking the other night or something like that right um it's also staying in touch with mentors and mentors and friends in recovery over the phone i'm on the phone a lot uh talking about uh recovery checking in with friends who are in recovery friends checking in with me um and a lot of it isn't so much talking through things like, um, I, I really feel like getting high today because those days are few and far between, thank God, because um, the craving is long past. 
it's more along the lines of I'm struggling at work today. The boss is being, you know, a jerk today. Someone, a friend might say, and I might say something like I'm having a bad health day, like my blood sugar is off. And the reason why that's important and, and how that ties into recovery is that everything is connected. Like if my blood sugar is off and I'm not feeling good and uh, I mouth off to someone in traffic that could get me in trouble with the law. And in turn, I may beat myself up by taking the thing that makes all the pain go away. And that's, you know, drugs and alcohol. So, so those are the everyday things I talk about. In that last diary entry, I mentioned going to Nuggets games. And that brings us back to the playoffs. I went to every Nuggets home game in the postseason. And as I was feeling better physically, Denver just kept winning and winning. On Monday, June 12, 2023, the Denver Nuggets were one win away from winning the NBA Finals. I had a premonition that morning, and I included it in a feature story I told for CPR News. The morning of Game 5, I was really emotional. I've been a Nuggets fan my entire life, and before every game, I hang a Nuggets flag outside my house. And as soon as I hung it, I walk in and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road is playing on my Pandora station. I can't think of a better sign for today and I'm getting totally choked up over this. Today's the day. Let's win a championship today. Go Nuggets. Later that week, there was a Nuggets victory parade in Denver. I wasn't going to go originally. I was so exhausted from the playoffs. But a person with a lot of pool in this city arranged for me to ride on top of a fire truck in the parade. I was in the Nuggets victory parade. Can you believe it? We're almost to Union Station. It's an exuberant crowd, to say the least. It's a beautiful day in Denver. It's a beautiful day for a championship parade. Go Nuggets!
I almost died. And here I am riding in a victory parade alongside my favorite Nuggets players. My gosh, what is life? <laughs> I know I can absolutely survive this. I absolutely can thrive. I can't always control what goes on inside of me. But the things I can control, well, I have the recovery tools and doctors and friends and family to do so. After all, I'm in the hands of angels. The third season finale of Back From Broken, CPR's podcast about recovery with host Vic Vela. Find it everywhere you get podcasts and at CPR.org. You can also listen to Vic's original memoir episode from season one. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's a month-long celebration of Latino heritage. Join CPR Classical to explore centuries of Latin American music traditions, including right here in Colorado, Latin Heritage Month. Ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. You're tuned to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Two journalism students at Colorado College didn't spend their summer breaks hanging out on a beach or working a part-time job. Instead, they reported from the borders of Ukraine. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce shares their story. Michael and I were talking just outside of the classroom, and I was like, you know, all this talk, all this studying, I would really just love to just go abroad and experience one of the biggest events that's going on just in the world right now. That's 21-year-old Colorado College senior Zeke Lloyd explaining his hard sell on a wild summer project idea to his friend and fellow senior Michael Braithwaite. That's halfway around the world from here. Neither of us have any experience in that region whatsoever, you know. In fact, outside of classwork, their reporting experience at the time had been mostly limited to the CC weekly student newspaper, The Catalyst. But Braithwaite figured if we can cobble together some campus grants, maybe it could work. In some ways, it was almost like a test, right? It's like, okay, both of us feel like we want to do this, at least in some form post-grad. Are we actually good journalists? <laughs> Are we actually good reporters? The two spent five weeks in Eastern Europe. Lloyd says they opted against risking the danger of entering Ukraine proper and instead chose to examine the secondary impacts on surrounding nations. You're seeing really, really human moments. You're seeing really powerful acts of kindness, altruism, selflessness, and you don't have to go to the front lines to see that. Lloyd and Braithwaite wrote seven stories together and published them in the Colorado Springs Gazette. Their first step was Slovakia, a country with a population of five and a half million, a little less than Colorado's. Yet Slovakia has seen well over a half million Ukrainian migrants come across their borders, migrants either passing through on their way to another country or looking to stay in Slovakia with some sort of asylum or other protected status. The pair reported on that crisis. Here's Lloyd in an audio version of one of their stories. This mass migration dwarfs any event in Slovakian history and puts the country at the center of the world stage. 
The two found themselves hyper-aware of the varying perceptions of the United States as they moved east across the country. But perhaps most notably, they found a citizenry engaged with the start of the 2024 U.S. presidential election cycle. Here's Braithwaite. They are really focused on what's happening in the United States because for the state of global politics, it could be a massive shift. From Slovakia, they traveled to the country of Georgia, across the Black Sea from Ukraine on Russia's southern border. And what they found there was another influx of migrants, but this time it was young Russian men looking to avoid being conscripted into the Russian military and sent to the front lines. Even to this day, Georgia is one of the few countries that you can travel freely to with a Russian passport right now. Um, you know, they have friendly diplomatic relations. And those friendly ties come despite Russia also occupying 20% of Georgia's land for 15 years now. Lloyd and Braithwaite found for Georgians themselves, the new Russian migrants weren't a problem, but they feared their presence in Georgia could stoke greater aggression from the Kremlin in the future. The two met with those Russian migrants in Georgia. They spoke with leaders of Slovakian refugee centers struggling to keep up with demand. They saw the after effects of war spreading far beyond the war-torn region itself. I think we bore that responsibility. We felt that. Their tour of a war-torn Eastern Europe in the 21st century did end with something decidedly more upbeat. Here we took a quick five-day detour to Serbia. Um, to cover Nikola Jokic's uh, return back to his hometown after the Denver Nuggets won the NBA Finals. Three bus rides brought them to the now infamous humble horse race track of Jokic's hometown of Sombor. It was a taste of Colorado, of home half a world away. There was a moment just on the bus ride back where I think the two of us were just absolutely exhausted, completely beat. I think that was probably maybe the most, the time of the trip where I really felt the most like in the moment, like this is pretty cool. Back in the springs, the two hope to add some more international reporting experience to their portfolio soon, but they have that pesky senior year to get through first. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. A note that Colorado College and CPR partner to operate KRCC. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my colleagues. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Audio Innovations at CPR, this is CPR News and KRCC.